You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you'll want to listen on to find out what she has to say about the Melbourne market and all the complexities to the buying process and what makes a great property. And if buyers are just looking at, at the quote range and saying, well, they've outlawed underquoting now and these agents have given us comparables, they're not doing themselves justice because they'll be set up for a fail with an expectation of price being below where it, where it actually is because they're not looking deeper into it. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking dumbbell of the week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this week's episode, we pick the brains of Melbourne buyer's advocate, Kate Bacos. Kate started her career in chemistry and, as so many others in real estate have done, ended up following her passion into the property industry. She's had experience as a mortgage broker, a sales agent, as well as a buyer's agent and a qualified investment property advisor. And in 2014, she launched Kate Bacos Property, a boutique Melbourne business helping clients not only in Melbourne, metro suburbs, but also in Victorian regional markets, including Ballarat and Geelong. Along the way, Kate has won a whole bunch of awards and last year she succeeded me as Vice President of REBA, which is the Real Estate Buyers Agents Association of Australia. And I must say, she has done a much better job of that than I did. (laughs) You're way too kind. (laughs) Now, we've had quite a bit of listener feedback requesting some Melbourne content. So today we're looking forward to your insights, Kate. So thank you for joining us. Can't wait. Thank you, Kate. Great to see you. Good to see you again, Chris. I mean, a bit of disclosure to the listeners here. Kate was the first buyer's agent I ever worked with back seven years ago. And Kate actually took me around properties in Melbourne on a Saturday on my first learning about the property market. So a big thank you to you, Kate. Pleasure. Lots of music bars and bananas that day, wasn't it? Yeah. And, you know, helped family out by and things like that. So, you know, we have talked a lot about Sydney in our you know first 20 episodes. We are going to Melbourne. So we've got two days down there. We do. Very soon. Excellent. Talk you can have to- some good coffee. Um, we yeah, get good, good coffee. coffee in Sydney oh, too, no, you know. Not the same. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we haven't been to Melbourne because it's been winter. So we're just yes. wait, waiting till summer. Fair um, cool. But yeah, lots of great people to speak to down there. But what's actually happening in Melbourne for Sydney siders who or any people in Melbourne? What's what's going on in the Melbourne market? Yeah, well, this time last year we had our our Reba conference and all got together, and the Sydney siders were talking about how things had tightened up and got a bit difficult. The market was slowing. And inquiry was slowing. And I remember at the time getting a few stares when I suggested that inquiry was pretty good in Melbourne and I didn't understand what was going on. Obviously, we knew that lending had tightened and inquiry was dropping and and Sydney had started to show signs of slowing down. But Melbourne has uh, lagged behind Sydney in terms of our timing to, to correct. And we are in the thick of a correction right now. And interestingly, we've got a bit of a dual speed market. So we've had our first home buyer incentive from our state government, similar to yours, where our first home buyers don't have stamp duty payable up to a certain amount, then they have a a decreasing amount. And so that's really stimulated that part of the market. So we're seeing everything up to about 700,000 booming. And then we've got houses in that million dollar plus mark slowing down. And one thing I, I chatted to Veronica about just before was good property in good locations. That's less susceptible to slow down, but when you've got a, a bit of a, a flaw or a fault with a property or a location, the buyers are scrutinising much harder and they're really difficult properties. So you can pick up a property that might score 80% instead of 90% and you'll get that for a bit of a bargain right now in Melbourne if you can time it right. But a few years ago, those 80% were going for... They were forgiven. Yeah, yeah they were flying. Yeah. Buyers were just desperate to get on the ladder and they thought that if they don't buy now, they'll never buy and we saw some really silly behaviour. Right now, they're scrutinising and, and they're being a lot more choosy. So the people who potentially have bought in the last few years, you know, mm. and they've bought something that maybe isn't the best quality, mm. if they had to sell now, they'd probably see some reasonable price falls? They could see some softening on the price that they paid unless they paid a silly premium. Yep. 
And if they're in a position where they can add a bit of value to the property, so if the floor was relating to the dwelling itself, not the location, they might be forgiven. But ideally, if you paid top dollar a couple of years ago, you'd want to be holding that property, particularly if it has imperfections. Mm. Oh, there's a message for buyers there. And look, that pattern and that buyer behaviour and the difference in, I guess, the impact on different types of properties when the market slows down is exactly the same in Sydney. Yeah. That, you know, the yep. main road properties, for argument's sake, in a booming market, people, they'll they'll panic and they'll pay top dollar for those purely because they worry they're being left behind and mm. and they're um, they're not as picky in a hot market. But mm. I tell you what, the pickiness comes out big time when the market slows down, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, they probably haven't missed out at free auctions and fearful, haven't seen the market move on them, you know, 5%. So they're just yeah. worried that if they don't buy now, they can't buy or they're going to miss the suburbs. So all that kind of fear of missing out has probably gone out of the market a lot. You set up to 700000 It's very competitive. Mm. So from my understanding of Melbourne, though, $700,000, okay, you might get into an apartment market. Yes. But, you know, we all know that the apartment market is, you know, potentially got supply issues, you know, from in investments. Certain, in certain segments of the city, there are some parts of the city where I would certainly favour a great apartment, particularly if it's boutique, it's got a great floor plan, it's in a great street. My little personal rule of thumb is if you're buying in a quiet street and there's a couple of apartment blocks, you'd, I could certainly forgive that, provided more than half of the dwellings are houses. If you're buying into a street that has lots of apartment blocks, it's not a very attractive street mm. and you'll have car issues as well. And probably half the residents, probably more owners than investors is probably another. Potentially, depending yeah. on the location, but probably. Yep. And when you're talking about boutique, you, you have a sort of a certain age yeah. of building? Uh, I, I certainly prefer older. I think something that's old and structurally sound and renovated internally, that, that's the you know, 10 out of 10 type age that, that you're looking for something. If it's too new, then obviously your, your dwelling value might eclipse the value of the component of land that would be apportioned mm-hmm. to that property. So land to asset ratio is a big consideration for me. The older the dwelling, the better. But then you've got things like condition, maintenance, special levies, I see, well, we've got a different word. To, um, to New South Wales people, mm-hmm. strata I think is what you call it. Mm-hmm. But we do look, I looked at one of your blogs, Veronica, it was great and it was about the questions to ask when you're buying into a block. And a boutique block for me would be the same as for you. It's a certain number of apartments in the block. It's no lifts, no pools, no concierge. It's little. It's boutique. You've mm-hmm. just got stairs. And so where in Melbourne, <laughs> where are these kind of boutique apartments in the city? You know, because they were built, say, 40, 50 years yeah. ago. And so it's where people were wanting to buy 40, 50 years ago. Yes. Um, so where are those kind of beautiful little pockets, yeah. I guess, in Melbourne for these apartments? If you get a, a Simpsons donut, so it's a big fat donut and you drop it straight on the city. So the inside of the donut's about two or three kilometres mm-hmm. across and then the rest <laughs> of the donut. Ask, what's a Simpsons yeah, donut? Simpsons, Homer Simpson eats a big fat oh, donut. Well, I thought yeah. it must have been a Melbourne. Uh, no, obviously <laughs> no. Okay, a donut. No, yeah. yeah, that's just a cake term. So the... Extremity of, of that radius might be 10 or 12 kilometres. It could even, obviously, our city has a, a land value that spans out. Uh, it's not a perfect circle. It spans out like an egg towards the southeast. So your values are higher in the southeast. So that donut shape is skewed. But <laughs> in that donut, yeah. where the donut sits, that's where you'll get a lot of these beautiful apartments. And, and there's a, a, a blend of higher density and high rise in lots of segments of our city, particularly in the south east. So you've got places like St Kilda and Richmond and Peran, South Yarra. Yep. Um, then you've got a, a bit happening in Brunswick and uh, around to the north as well. But as you go anti-clockwise around the city, you tend to get less towers until you hit Footscray, which is having a bit of a, a tower frenzy at mm-hmm. the moment. Mm-hmm. But in all of the other locations, you'll get a lot more of those boutique blocks. Yep. So we're yeah, not oversupplied. Kind of high rises to get built, so the yes. supply is staying very much like family and villages. Mm. And rather than you know your Footscray is getting lots of high rises, just your St Kilda's even um, South so. Yarra. That's quite localized because you do yeah. hear a lot about oversupply in Melbourne. I'll be careful about buying apartments in Melbourne because of oversupply. Well, so the inside of the donut ring—that's that's, that's where our towers are. Yeah, in the yeah. city and yeah. Docklands, and that that can be really dangerous if you go into an oversupplied area, particularly where the the floor plan of each unit is not necessarily. Uh, what the bank's like and it's not what the mainstream mm-hmm. local buyers want. We've well, got so a, there's a lot that's under 50 square metres. Heaps. Oh, heaps. Really? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, bizarre to think that they could even 
get that approved given the lending requirements? Yeah, we, we had a, a lot of um, talk in the media about uh, Chinese investors buying into the towers and we, we have a, a vacancy tax that applies for people that, that don't live here and, and own these properties. And it was a real issue. We were having investors purchase property that didn't um, fit our fundamental um, banking policy requirements for lenders' mortgage insurance lending. And that's another thing that I'll go into. But if you can't finance a purchase with LMI because of the type of dwelling, you've got an issue. Yeah. I mean, not only can't you get LMI for a lot of these properties that you won't even be able to borrow over 80% because they won't want to lend more than 80% on apartments in the city. So they might not even lend at all. So a lot of banks won't lend under 40 square metres. There's only a couple. Mm. Um, and if they pull out of the market, similar to self-managed super fund lending at the moment, all the banks pull out, then who's going to be able to get finance to buy a 35 square metre apartment? So right. yeah, it's pretty, pretty crazy. The other parts of the Melbourne market, on the housing side, I think there's not really a housing problem in my view in Melbourne because there's so much land available. You know, there's no real scarcity of houses in the outer rings, I guess. Yeah, I don't touch the outer rings, the, the fringe areas. I don't buy any house and land type properties and I'm not interested in something that's not supported by train station as an investment as well. We have a huge population growth in Melbourne and we have more car, cars hitting the road every day. Our roads are super congested. We can't say that Sydney is a headache anymore because we've got our own big headache down in Melbourne. Mm. So we <laughs> I've have experienced that. It's a nightmare. <laughs> it's and then worst. trams, God. <laughs> yes, you don't want to get stuck behind one of them. Mm. So it's a genuine issue. We we don't want to travel a long time to get home. We don't want to be stuck on a road. We we like the idea of being able to jump on and jump off a train. Nobody wants to be on an overcrowded train, but we, we have our own sets of issues and infrastructure is a, a big focus and it needs to be. Yeah, because the reason I th- um, the outer ring of Melbourne is it's a lot of talk around Melbourne land prices going up 60% last year in these kind of new estates. I mean, I was wondering, get your thoughts around you know, really, are they really going up 50% or are they? is it just really there was a shortage of supply and first home buyers overpaid? It's an interesting one. When you see um, the finalisation of a land release, you'll get a few mad scrambles towards the end. I don't subscribe to, to any truth in, in that claim. I don't think fringe areas can go up at that level. And if it was a genuine claim, I would suggest that the inner and middle ring land values would be going up substantially more because they're Obviously, in, in lesser supply, they're rare where everyone wants to be if they're working in the city and certainly from a lifestyle point of view. I do see some aggressive bidding behaviour out in the, the outer suburbs, but nothing in comparison with the inner and middle ring. Yeah. That's probably something to do with the zoning change in the first place, though, wouldn't it be? That was all farming land for argument's sake and then it got rezoned to being residential, then that's going to bring Absolutely. with it an increasing value. Yeah, that's a data anomaly. If that's how they're counting it, a farmer's purchased it for X and then it's been rezoned and they've, you know, hit land tax lotto. Happy days. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of it's, um, you know, housing estates, they could only sell a 400, 350, 400 square metre block of land for, say, 250000 But now, because a lot of first-home buyers are going there because yeah. they get, you know, no stamp duty, et cetera, yes. they're able to shift those blocks at, say, 350, 375 because mm. oh, there's been more first-home buyers being able to buy yeah. there. And then when the next release comes out, well, they'll go, we haven't got first-home buyers. Oh, we'll just sell them for what we used to sell them for yes. back at 250. And that's just something I, I can definitely see a bit of a warning sign in. It's a risk. You'd yeah. be underwater in, in a case like that. And we have to look at what's driving these 400 square metre blocks that are 30 kilometres out of CBD with no train stations around yeah. them. Is it that it's aspirational or is it that it's affordable? Because affordability doesn't um, drive an area long term without yeah. performance growth. You might see some blips and, and you might see blips when you've got additional funding or you've got incentives, but that's not a sustainable growth driver. I mean, I think that's a really big point for our listeners because people just naturally assume that the property market's just always going to keep going up. But for it to actually keep going up, you need the incomes in the area Mm, to keep going up. So, you know, if it's all people just keep moving to the area who are living there because they can't afford anywhere else. And that means generally because of their salaries. Yeah. It's hard to see that area go up a lot in value because Mm. There's not a lot of people moving there on higher incomes. So absolutely right. they can't get the mortgages to push the price of the property up. So, um, But there's also that 
idea that, you know, the reverse ripple effect basically if the market as a whole slows down and I no longer have to go that far out purely because it's affordable, I can actually afford closer in, well, then they drop all those outer areas like a hotcake. So you mentioned the word sustainable growth and I think that that's what's important, that any area needs more than one reason for buyers to buy there. Yes. I had this fantastic old saying, well, not an old saying, it's from someone who I've known for a long time who's been in the industry a while and we use the words you know, rising household incomes and rate of household income growth and lots of technical words, but he said, kiddo, money grows where money goes. Yeah. And that's how it goes. <laughs> I mean, it's so true though, follow the money. I mean, you know. Kiddo, I think- sorry, who says that? Come on. <laughs> He's this fantastic mentor. His name's Val. And he was really good to me and he, he's threatened to, to leave the industry but he keeps rebounding back in. He's one of these guys that just can't retire um, but he's a, a constant source of support. He's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I actually do think like that as well because if you think about who's got the money right now, I think who's got the money right now are people in their 50s and their 60s yes. who have had property for 20, 30 years in the capital cities. And they're getting to a different stage of their life and they're thinking, where do I want to put this money? And that money's going to start flowing somewhere. So, mm. I mean, young people haven't really got it, especially yes. first-home buyers. Mm. And if they do have it, they're putting it into one property. Yep. And a lot of upgraders don't have it because they've just gone and taken out another bigger mortgage. So it'll be interesting to see where a lot of the money flows. So where's wow. the money flowing in Melbourne? Yeah, that's a sore point. So the, the money for a lot of downsizers, baby boomers, retirees, is flowing into the cool areas where we upgraders would love to be. <laughs> We're Ooh. getting trumped. So we can be at auction and if it's got all of the hallmarks of something that a downsizer wants, particularly if they're getting a little bit older or they're thinking about mobility or it's lock and leave, they want to be in the cool areas. They want to be connected with the city and with lifestyle. And so you could go into Fitzroy and have your heart set on a three-bed single-level terrace and you'll get absolutely pulverised by yeah. a loaded baby boomer who doesn't really have to worry about whether they're overpaying or whether they're reaching their borrowing capacity. Half the time they're they're paying with a lot of cash, if not all cash, and it's a long-term proposition and the value for them is it's a happy next life step. So, yeah, yeah, they're not rational about setting a a spend limit. Yeah, they don't have to get a pre-approval because they're not borrowing any money (laughs) or something. So, you know, all the APRA changes, they're like, well, doesn't really matter. I'm buying with cash. So it's a uh, competition. <laughs> yes. Well, a lot of agents have been saying that, you know, yeah. yes, the first home buyer, not so much in, in Sydney because it's still pretty hard <laughs> yeah. for first home buyers in Sydney, but yeah. certainly the downsizer market is, is stronger than any other segment mm. at the moment. I'm saying to upgraders that are getting really despondent about being smashed to pieces at auction by baby boomers, just find something with lots of stairs. Get a re- yes. <laughs> no master bedroom on the ground floor. Let's just get something they won't want if that's what you need to mm. try and counteract. But bear in mind, the property that has a, a dual purpose, it could be a great family home or it could be a great downsizer home. If you're thinking about your future ability to sell and get a great price, well, it might hurt you to extend for it now. But in time, as we have more aging population changing their, their living setup, you, you could find that the, the growth that you experience is, is even stronger than what you anticipate. I don't know if I've mentioned on a podcast before, but the price of a lift has actually plummeted. So, I mean, you can put a lift in your house now for about 30 grand. Scale of economy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know what I mean? So, I mean, you know, you've got a terrace, beautiful yep. terrace, and you want to open it up to the downsizer market, then you can easily just put a lift in there. Or if you're older and you've got a terrace, you don't have to downsize. You can yes. just throw a lift in it. Is a value add. That's great. Yeah. Better than an extra bathroom. <laughs> 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 oh, God. You know, there's been a lot of talk in Melbourne about um, underquoting and some very hefty fines mm. have been handed out to some agents. And look, is that something that you are finding has the crackdown had an impact? Has it yes. changed their behaviour? Uh, it has. It's certainly changed the behaviour of those who have had fines. What about the others? <laughs> well, it, it means that it's not quite as predictable anymore. So we used to have this rule of thumb, just add 10 to 15%. And the really cheeky monkeys, you might add 20%. And that's out of hand. But now that we've got a regime where you have to list three comparable sales and your quote range has to reflect the comparables that you've picked out, It's a very difficult one for anyone who isn't studying those comparable sales and working out if they are actually comparable. We've had some beautifully located double, um, well, let's say a double front period Victorian in a great street. If that's compared to something that 
is falling apart and is almost uninhabitable or something on a train line or a main road or something that isn't a Victorian classic and it's just a 1980s brick and tile, then that's not comparable. And if buyers are just looking at at the quote range and saying, well, they've outlawed underquoting now and these agents have given us comparables, they're not doing themselves justice because they'll be set up for a fail with an expectation of price being below where it, where it actually is because they're not looking deeper into it. So I think what we've done is created a bit of a rod for our own back because it's very hard for our regulators to, to study every single campaign and even if they did, they'll have to look into whether those quotes are unrealistic or whether there was a genuine limited amount of data out there to use as evidence. It's just created a lot more work and I think that we've got quite a disparity between our quoting regimes now. That's really interesting. I, I think we had a change of the laws, 2016 now, you know, and, and it gave agents three options. And and my argument has always been, well, that doesn't necessarily help buyers because of that lack of consistency mm. and, and variability in that. And what you're saying is exactly the same thing. They've yeah. cracked down and now it's just opened up a, an avenue for interpretational bias, you know. Certainly. If someone wants to try and underquote, they can probably get away with it a, a little more easily now because there's <laughs> some, you know, false data there. That, and it's, who's to say that it's not the best comparable? I mean, you're yeah. dealing with three sets of data. But what it has done is enabled some other quoting regimes that I think have, have tightened things up for us and made it a little easier for consumers. We've had some agencies um, take a new approach and declare the reserve. We've got one in um, Newport Williamstown who who openly puts the reserve on the website. Sometimes right. it looks quite attractive. That means that vendor is prepared to sell it for that price on the day. So this is at the beginning of the campaign? At the beginning, yes. And what if they get an offer that's over that during the campaign? They'll call around. They'll call everyone and say, you had interest in this property. We've received an acceptable offer. We're going to pull it together by 6 o'clock on Thursday night. If you've got interest, you need to let us know now. We'll have a boardroom auction or we'll call around. Now that's interesting too, the boardroom auction, yeah. uh, and that is a bit of a Melbourne thing. Love because, them. <laughs> well, yeah, I had the experience when we were filming for one of our buyers yeah. uh, in Thornbury. Oh, I think cool. It was, or Northcote. Yeah. And, yeah, a boardroom auction, that was a yes. really interesting experience. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah, I actually have had one in Sydney, but it's definitely not commonplace here. So yeah. can you explain for listeners what that is? Yeah, in Melbourne when we've got a scheduled public auction, we have what we call auction conditions applying three business days before and after. So the auctions are usually on a Saturday, unless you're in Balaclava, they run them on a Sunday. On a Saturday, it means that from... And that's because of the high Jewish... Jewish community, yes. yeah. Yeah, we can't work on a Saturday. And it's pretty cool unless you've got a few clients with auctions on Saturday and then a couple on Sunday. It means yeah. you get no weekend, but that's okay. With an auction campaign, it means that you've got auction conditions kicking in from Wednesday right through to the following 5pm Wednesday night. So if a property goes under offer in, well, if someone makes a compelling offer within that time period, they have no cooling off period and it's an unconditional offer usually. And so in a lot of cases, we'll have agents encouraging buyers if they're going to make an offer to do it in that time period because the vendor carries less risk. They've already paid for their campaign and they don't want it to fall over due to someone changing their mind. Every now and then you might have an offer come in outside of that period. It means someone came in earlier. It might be someone like me stepping forward in week two. The vendor has to make a decision whether they're prepared to sell that property at that price or better then and there. And if it's a price tag that's over the quoted price, the agent and the vendor rejects the offer. They wish to keep rolling and going to auction. They have to reflect that in their quoted price. So when you see a quoted price jet up, it usually means that the vendor's rejected an offer. Not in every case, but in most cases. Mm. If the vendor decides that it is a compelling offer and the agent encourages them to place the property on the market, that means the agent will contact every other interested buyer and usually give them something around 24 to 48 hours. They'll put a deadline down. They'll draw a line in the sand and say 6 p.m. tomorrow night if there's no further interest, the property will be sold. Otherwise, at 6pm, we're having a boardroom auction in our office. So you go into the agency boardroom, you sit around the big boardroom table. For a buyer's advocate, it's great because it's even more intimidatory. We, we can have a lot of effect because your presence when you're confident in a room like that yep. is very palpable. And buyers don't know what the rules are. They don't know how to do it because it's, it's not something everyone does in their lifetime. We do it all the time. 
clutch my Monopoly against someone who plays Monopoly every week and you're yeah. like, oh, do I roll two dice or one? You That's know? right. And they sit down and they <laughs> smile and they're nervous and they might have a support person with them. And I've got to look like a nasty Terminator because yeah. I'll have that split second opportunity to lay down bids and try and prevent them from thinking on the run or gathering any momentum or finding more money. They've got to be shut down and that's a horrible thing to say but that's what a professional bidder does. So in that environment, it's a simulated auction. If it's either side of the the scheduled auction by three days, it has auction conditions applying but it isn't the same as a normal outside auction. Mm -hmm. And the agent will simulate the auction whenever the date is that it's being held They'll get the person who made the offer that placed it on the market to confirm their bid and then they'll call for bids. You can go around in $1,000 increments or you can slam it with 10s or 20s or do what you like. They'll usually set a minimum. They'll say nothing under $1,000. We don't want to be here all night. And when it when the last man is standing or the last woman is standing, the contract gets signed and the vendors are waiting in another room. What about if it's before, earlier in the campaign, before that non, yes. um, the non-cooling yeah. off period? What happens then? So the same thing happens, but you've got a cooling off period. That's insane. (laughs) It is insane. It's scary for the agents. I I wouldn't like to place a property on the market knowing that someone could change their mind. But I guess if it's early enough, you've got time, I I suppose, to continue rolling with that campaign, but it would make a mess. So you've got to be Mm. able to trust your buyer, trust your instincts that they have done all of their due diligence. They're not about to walk away from the deal. You don't want them to say the next day, look, listen, I know we said it was an unconditional offer, but can we just get a building inspector through? Because that creates risk and it does happen. So making sure that you're protecting your vendor, I guess, has to be the, the ultimate priority for the agent. This is, you know, we've had, um, you know, a number of Sydney agents uh, that we've interviewed and we've talked to a number of them about the pre-auction process, the pre-auction buying process in Sydney. And some people think our 66W certificate <laughs> is tricky and difficult yep. and the exchange process is tricky and difficult. Uh, and just for listeners who haven't listened to any of those episodes, the 66W in New South Wales is a certificate that you need to get from your solicitor or conveyancer to allow you to waive the cooling off period. Mm. And that is usually required of you if you want to buy a property prior to auction. And I'll caveat that just while I'm on this topic, because when the market's slower, agents love selling property prior to auction because they are more worried about lack of competition at auction. So if you're being encouraged by an agent to make an offer prior, be very, very aware that you may be the only interested party. But still the whole point being you have to be able to buy without a cooling off period in New South Wales. So what you're saying then, Mm. just to clarify for me here, is that in Victoria, if you're making an offer prior to auction, if it's before the last three days of a campaign. You have a cooling off. That's It is crazy. So not. Not too long ago, we had, similar to your form, we had a a clause on our contract. If your contract was reviewed by a solicitor, you waived your right to cooling off. And now it's just a, there's no, that has been removed and you can have any legal representative review your contract and not lose your cooling off period. And in fact, you can't create a clause that says, I'm happy to give it up. Really? There are Mm. a few other things that, that do eliminate the cooling off period. If a licensed real estate agent is buying the property, then there's no cooling off. If the property (laughs) is used for commercial purposes or industrial purposes, there's no cooling off. And if the contract is being signed again, so if one contract has fallen over and then it's re-signed by the same buyer, then they have no right to a cooling off. But it is a a difficult uh, situation and a lot of buyer's agents didn't like the change because it meant that the the power of that unconditional offer was taken away from them. Mm. And also, but I think there must be a clue then for buyers, if an agent is willing to entertain your offer under those circumstances, then that must be a big clue that you are the strongest or maybe the only buyer interested, wouldn't it Not be? Not necessarily. So I think there's three reasons why an agent will encourage you to make an offer prior. The first and the obvious one is that they're a bit, a bit worried about the campaign and you might be the strongest or the only one. The next one is that they're they're lacking confidence themselves. They might be a very nervy agent. Some agents really start mm. to fall apart, especially if they've got a very dominant vendor who absolutely wants it sold on the day. <laughs> and there was one third one and it's just about brain. <laughs> gone out of my brain. That's going to have to come back to me. But um, agents that... Or the vendor is really desperate to sell, I imagine. The vendor has, yes, has a certain date or set of conditions that they mm. need you to meet. And it's just too quirky for 
for the agent to feel confident that the mainstream buyer can do that. So let's say it's the 30-day settlement period. Brokers don't love 30 days, especially if it's over Easter or something like that. So when an agent says it's got to be 30 days, um, I'm happy to go to auction and fight it out because I've got a lot of power there. But when the agent's just a bit nervy and I know that that's their form and it's a great property, I can anticipate that I might be giving my buyer an edge if I just buy it prior. I've got a bit of a Melbourne-centric um, question for you. I was talking to uh, Dr. Andrew Wilson yeah. today, you know, the economist. He was telling me that there's a higher proportion of uh, withdrawn auctions in Sydney than there are in Melbourne. You know, there's been some mm. controversy recently around auction clearance rates and and whether withdrawn properties are included in the ca- in the rate calculations or yeah. not. So yes, he was saying that there's a behavioural difference, yes. and I don't know. I've got no idea why that might be the case. But why do you think that there aren't many auctions withdrawn or properties withdrawn from auction in Melbourne? We're a very auction centric city, and Vendors know how, how the process will go. They'll either sell on the day or they'll go into Part B, which is which to private sale, and they'll sell soon after. Mm. And a, a very well-rehearsed agent speech is that if it doesn't sell on the day, the percentage chances of it selling the next day are X, and then within the next two days, a Y, and then within the week, a Z. And it, it gives uh, vendors a lot of comfort that they will ultimately get a sale and it's okay to mm. pass in. Could it be to do with those extra three days unconditional? Maybe. Potentially, and, and that's a, a good point that you raise because I've participated in quite a few auctions this year that have passed into me and I've, I've purchased, purchased afterwards. And technically when we report that data, it should say passed in, bought after. And sometimes it says sold under the hammer. That's okay. I'm not going to look. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> well, that's the other thing with, you know, your clearance rates, right? It's saying yeah. what sells at auction. You know, yes. there's always, you know, miss. The integrity of the data, it's only as good as what's reported. Yeah, but the reporting, so, you know, they've basically got a deadline at the end of Saturday, I don't know. Saturday night and Sunday night it closes off. So we have have two sets of reports come through and that can start to increase if we've had a few sell on the the following day. But, yes, to your point, if it sells on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, there's no cooling off. So I want to say a bit of a different tact. So... um, we haven't had many buyers agents on the show, even though we've got one here every week. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's lots of myths around buyers agents, where they add value, where they don't add value. Mm. You know, I guess, you know, customers have got different perceptions, like they feel like they can do it themselves. Yes. You know, so where does a buyers agent really add value? I get this question all the time. <laughs> um, what, what people think that we, we should add the most value in is not always where I think we add the most value. So... People say, demonstrate how you can negotiate more than your fee. Well, I can't demonstrate that because I can't repeat the auction and I can't find an identical property and resell it. So all you can do... (laughs) Parallel universe. Yeah, we can't do it. It's not like a (laughs) share. So that's the first myth that I'll, I'll blast. But I do say to people, if you think you're a better property negotiator than me, I'm only doing four or five a week, then then you have a go. And sometimes when you call their bluff, they fall apart on auction day. Yeah, okay, I don't want to bid. Can you do it? But the point is we're doing it all the time and we've got to have their trust and we've got to explain to them why we might go about a negotiation a certain way. Are we putting in an offer prior? Are we gearing up for auction? Is it a private sale? Will we force a boardroom auction? Do we want best and highest? There's so many different ways to negotiate. So and back- that's not the same for every property, right? No, like if you're negotiating on a unit or a four-bedroom house or you know, in the east or yes. the west, you know, different agents. I'm sure yeah. you're changing your ta- strategy Very much to so. every single property. Absolutely. So the, the way that we negotiate is, is one that they think that we should be able to demonstrate where we add value. And then the, the next one is how much work we do. Well, it's the years of expertise that we've built up that can make something that would take them six or 12 months a really easy, short assignment for us. And it doesn't mean that we won't apply a lot of rigour. It just means it might happen a lot quicker. We ask the right questions. We make the right decisions. We know when to be a bit flexible and we know when to say no. So that's another value add. But I think by far the the value that a buyer's agent brings to the table um, is certainly the, the assets that we select and the ones we say no to. I always joke about the John West principle. Um, it's the fish that we throw away. That's what yes. makes us the best. <laughs> and it's important to know what to say no to. But then there are other um, other things that people talk to buyers agents about. I'm asked all the time, how many off markets do you get? 
Well, if they want lots of off-markets, I could get heaps, but some mm. of them will be rubbish. They'll be young, ag- yeah, young <laughs> agents saying, I've got a listing, it's worth 1.6, but he wants two mil, but do you want to come through? It's an off-market. No, I don't want to come through that one. Um, our other value add that is probably the least talked about is our ability to talk to agents, not just get along with them and bring out the best or have a rapport or get special treatment, but the questions that we ask and the information that we don't give them. So I think they're all intangible. We can't put a dollar fi- a figure on those, but it's years of experience and understanding how to pick the property, how to talk to the agents, when to push forward with an offer, how to do that, that really makes the difference between going in a line and getting a professional. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, I, every time I work with a buyer's agent, I always learn, you know, something else where they've added value. And I, I quite regularly, I look, high percentage of my clients have used buyer's agents, as you know, well over 80% of buyers are using buyer's agents. And I look back at every single one of them and I always think, would they have bought that property? Would they have got that deal done by themselves? And most of the time I, I can on heart say, I don't reckon they would have got it. Um, because of some, there was something within that journey where, you know, that something happened that the deal actually came off. Um, yes. And, you know, and that's, that's just a telling sign to say that, you know, on their own, they probably wouldn't have been able to get the job done or they wouldn't have got what they bought. So Also looking for the right property in the right in the first place yeah. and understanding because quite often people bring you a brief and you read it and you'll think there are other possibilities they haven't even considered. Yeah. And their process, they may get there, but like you said, it's going to take six or nine or 12 months for them to come to these realisations versus somebody who's got a practice eye and understands what the options are and the possibilities are and, and can yeah. actually have that conversation with them and help them explore that in a really quick, quick, efficient way yes. so that they can come to those conclusions and see opportunities quicker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, are all buyers agents equal? No. no, of course not. No, <laughs> but we're people, we're all different as well. And so one person that might be great for, for one particular personality won't for the other. Sometimes you need a really strong, um, dominant person to say, no, you need to go and visit this property. I've shortlisted it for a reason. Other times you need to be really sympathetic to to nerves or to getting two people on the same page. So we all have our own specialist skills and we all have personality traits that can really assist certain buyers. But if you're asking me whether there are some bad buyers agents out there, well, of course there are. Yeah. And I mean, I guess, you know, I've met with hundreds of buyers agents and, you know, a few questions I'll always ask is, you know, you know, one, do you buy a new property? And, oh, and I mean, that's the first one. And, um, you know, if they say yes, I mean, the conversation generally doesn't continue, <laughs> um, you know, and I think there's, there's a few things like that, you know, I mean, do you buy in all over Melbourne, let's say, or do you buy all over Sydney? And if, yeah. They say yes. I mean, to me, that's another massive warning sign to say, how can you possibly buy everywhere? <laughs> we yeah. were just at the Reba conference and, um, in fact, Kate and I have just come from there. It was funny. We were just talking to an agent who's a buyer's agent who's based in Canberra. Mm. And there's not a lot of buyer's agents down there, but she was talking about, um, you know, a Sydney-based buyer's agent. She saw pop-up buying a property in Canberra for a client. I mean, <laughs> it's just not really feasible to be able to add an enormous amount of value if you're not local, if you do not understand the local dynamics. There's a lot to be said for for the agent relationships and your intimacy with an area as well. I'd like to think that if someone asked me about a particular street in the, the suburbs that I do a lot of work in, I wouldn't have to get on street view. I mean, that's an enormous mm. benefit. Mm. And when I look at the agent's name on the listing, I know how they call auctions or I know what their likelihood is to tell me what the reserve is or what what the, the background hints are that, that could help me benefit with, with bidding strategy. So there's a lot to be said for, for that local knowledge. And I remember having a, a fantastic client assignment where there was a property that would have just been perfect, but obviously I thought its value was above her budget and I didn't want to present it to her and then have to say, look, I'm sorry, I've overshot it. And I thought it was 5 to 10% over. And we got tipped off by the agent on the Thursday night. He said, you know that property you called me about? It's not tracking so well and the vendor's overseas and it has to sell. I reckon you should be there. I'm not promising you anything, but if you're there at the level that you were talking at, I think you've got a good crack. So I had to organise a building inspection, a contract review, full analysis, got the client to, to be prepared to give it a go and we got it, passed in. So that kind of knowledge and relationship is not something that is easy for an out-of-towner to do. That's priceless, that sort of intel. Well, yeah. I mean, that happened to you-know-who. So, yes. um, you know, one of my clients, um, <laughs> you know. So, you know, a lot of the myths out there that, um, 
you know, investors or, or I believe is there's a bit of a secret society between real estate agents and buyers agents, yep. you know, behind the, the kind of curtains, you know, yes. and, um, you know, you, there's- I think particularly in a slower market, absolutely mm. at the moment, because we are getting more of that quality in, in, intel about, look, this vendor really has to sell yeah. or this one doesn't. Um, you know, and th- yeah. there's there's a little bit more of that. They realise that we know how to take that information and act on it yes. to the benefit of our clients if it suits our clients. And I've always thought that's a real benefit of understanding and working with those type of agents who get that they've got to get a job done. Yes. Yeah, well, well and if I was a real estate agent and I wanted to sell a property, you know, and I wanted to find a buyer, you know, I could either go out in the street and look at the av- try to get the average punter who – May bought one property, may bought no property, might have bought twenty properties. Um, maybe very experienced, might not have finance. There's so much risk going out there to the general market. But then mm. you've got a buyer's agent who might have a buyer. I'm probably going to invest more in a buyer's agent, aren't I? Than you know, potentially this phone call, random phone call. You'd think so because in this climate, and I'm sure you're the same. I'm asking every client to show me their pre-approval, not just to see that they've got it and it's valid to understand what the conditions of their pre-approval are and also understand when it lapses. We can pop that in the calendar and remind them as we're getting close. I need to be auction ready every time because the, the moment they let that pre-approval lapse, the perfect property is going to come along and yeah, an agent's going to take an <laughs> offer prior and it will just be a mad scramble. So the agents know that. They know that we have buyers who are prepped and ready, who have their finance, who have their equity loan in place for their deposit. They're already looking at the right properties I can confidently say that the buyer's agent buyers don't pull off at the same rate as normal buyers do. And it's very rare actually to have a buyer change their mind. We can usually address whether it's because they've got regret for good reason or or because they're having a free count. And it's always free count. Yeah, yeah. Because we've already established their criteria and we've already got them out there looking at property. Yeah, or something's hit realestate.com.au and they've just signed a contract and they're you know, getting post purchase dissonance. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's um, very common. Yeah, don't look at real estate company or domain after you yes. sign the contract. And don't read the scary headlines. You know, yeah. they're the things that can, can wobble buyers. Well, it's like going back on Tinder after you just got married <laughs> <laughs> or divorce. Um, <laughs> no, that's a bit different. Yeah. So I've got a question here. So, um, Melbourne really has been uh, pretty much the leading force in terms of buyer's advocacy in Australia. I mean, it's certainly, I think, more prevalent in Melbourne than it is in Sydney. Well, we've certainly got a history in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, I think in numbers you've got more in Sydney, but we've got some really established buyer's agency firms and older buyer's agents who have been doing it for a long time in Melbourne. So, yes, it it is widely accepted. We call ourselves advocates in Melbourne. It's a funny Mm. change in terminology Mm. when I catch up with my Reba buddies. We used to saying to the agents, you know, are there any other advocates on it or have you spoken to any advocates? That's our terminology. I quite like that actually. Um, But also vendor advocacy. Mm. Now, that's something that is a little bit, I mean, I've dabbled in it. Well, I want to say dabbled. I mean, I have offered that service to some of our clients, but it's not commonly um, done. It's not common practice in New South Wales. In no way near the same same way it is in Victoria. And I know that a lot of buyers agents or buyers advocates do offer and do a lot, quite a lot of work mm. in vendor advocacy. Yes. But I've all, at the same time, once again, through the show is the first time I came across that we purchased a property through a vendor advocate. Mm. And I find it sort of disturbing really that, that it, there's a need for it. I mean, you've I got- do too. <laughs> I do too. And I'm not knocking the people that do it. There's a diversification to their business and some of them I think would do it well and follow some great models, but I don't do it. And for that reason, if you don't trust your agent, probably haven't got the right agent. Yeah. There is a, a genuine need for people that are incapable of making that decision, whether it's that they're very aged or, or they really need some special assistance. So I think there's a specialisation there, but being a buyer's agent and a vendor's agent at the same time, I think that's that's a, a juggle that would be very hard and, and I'm glad I don't do it. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty uncommon. I mean, I don't think a lot of our listeners would even know what vendor advocacy probably is. Possibly not, um, yeah. You know, I guess it's it's when, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's when you engage an advocate, I guess, to help you select the real estate agent to sell your home. Yep. And they'll give you advice on how to sell it and how to dress it and what's going to hit the market. A good one would probably would. Um, and then would interview a number of agents, yep. negotiate for you on what, um, you know, their rates of commission is. 
they get a bit of that commission because they they see that as a bit of a finder's fee. Yep. Um, and then they give you a lot of advice through the sale to, you know, whether you get offers, whether you should take them or yep. not. Um, I mean, that, is that really uh, what it is? Sort of. But, I mean, I, I have an issue with it too in the sense that really you're taking a cut of the selling yep. agent's fee. I charge a fee. When, when my clients want us to do that, and sometimes there are good cases for them as well to do that. And I think certainly having a sounding board for the negotiation process and, and so an interpretation for them to understand what's really going on. There's there's some benefits in mm. that that explanation through that the difficult end of the, the sale process. But I charge separately for that. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with the agent. And I think you have to have that delineation. Yeah. Because it God, how murky is it? You know? Oh, I totally agree. I yeah. think a separate fee if that's the task. I I can't knock that, but your description, Chris, was was almost bang on. But imagine adding lots of shades of grey to that. We've got some <laughs> vendors agents, the vendors advocates that that might select three names, and that's about the most involvement they have finders in the process. Fee, yeah. mm. And the finders fee could be fifty percent, which I have really? an issue that with. High. Wow! And the agent is the one on the door, working the buyers, profiling mm. who's interested, working out what else is going on, and and what sort of um, reserve price is sensible to set. And I'm sure that there are some vendor advocates that add value, but I can hand on my heart say that there are a lot of vendor advocates that take away value. I've had some really lousy purchase experiences where I've felt that the vendor's advocate has made a mess of things and they've um, taken away some of the power and the ability for the listing agent who was running with it and had a good grip on it mm. to make the right decisions in the right time frame. So too many cooks spoiling the Sometimes. Broth. In some mm. cases I've seen a mess made of it. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, do you trust your agent? I mean, but, mm. you know, people's natural tendency is they probably feel like they shouldn't or they need some advice and then it's like, well, actually, if you probably took the time to, you know, maybe took a bit more due diligence to figure out mm. how you're going to well, deal with though, it. Although, I mean, look, I do have a real issue. I've got a policy in my business of never taking um, kickbacks and I will never pay them. So yes. it's, if we refer, it's on the basis of, of good performance and yep. likewise we hope in reverse. I've always really struggled against, and, and look, I can think of some buyer's agents, in fact one in particular in Sydney, that makes a habit of really, they, they actually jump in proactively with their clients who are about to sell and say, look, we'll handle all that won't cost you a thing, and off they go. And uh, if the selling agent doesn't agree on the split, the commission split, they don't get referred. Now, mm. so so this is oh, it's a good elephant, this one. I yes. hadn't thought about this when I asked the question yeah. because, you know, there is uh, a, a vendor or an owner who thinks they're then being represented um, because sales agents aren't trustworthy and then you've got a, a situation where that vendor's advocate is actually not the trustworthy one. Yes. You know, you've got to test the, the motivations, I guess, behind all of this, don't you? Impartiality, it's a really hard one. This is a, a murky waters elephant. Yeah, I think for our listeners in Melbourne, um, one of the things I say to clients is one of the signs of success or one of the things that people aspire to in Melbourne um, when they're, you know, doing well and they earn a higher income is everyone wants a nice frontage. Um, and, you know, the competition for beautiful frontages in Melbourne um, now, to me is, is you know, one of the best things you can do is buy a nice frontage. Can you kind of explain, if you, if you agree, um, you know, how that really works and why it's such a, I don't know, a driver. It's like people just go ballistic for something that looks nice. Frontage. Front. Okay. So are we talking a uh, period property? Yeah. Yeah. We go a bit crazy for our Victorians and Edwardians federations. They're, they're limited and they're scarce. They're usually in great spots. Very hard to find a period property more than... 11 or 12 kilometres outside of the city until you go south, you might be able to go 15 or 16 k's and or southeast. Um, we, we do love a pretty facade and it usually is a bit of a hint of what's inside as well, especially if it's a, um, a terrace or a single front. Um, we, we just love that picturesque kind of streetscape as well. So when you've got a really pretty street that has uniform period properties, that's a corker of a street, you will get a crowd. And some day. trees. Yeah, and those <laughs> trees. I mean, that's the thing. You know, when you think about investing in Melbourne, yes, you know, you get yourself a nice frontage and you get yourself on a nice street with trees that's mm. walkable to a train. Yeah. Um, you know, you, do you have to go much further than that? If you were looking to get, you know, and you had a budget for it, is that what you would go for? Is that type of asset? Oh, if, if I'm picking a capital growth 
performer. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a period property in a beautiful street, but I certainly wouldn't want it to be in an ugly street. Um, I could go into an area that's maybe 13 or 14 k's north of the city. It depends on the budget, but you could buy particularly well. Let's say we went into Glenroy. There are some really pretty streets in Glenroy with some some nice character homes. They're not necessarily Victorian era, but as long as you're buying in a well-located street and has good street appeal, you'll do well on, on the capital growth front. But if you haven't got a million dollars, you will struggle to get a Victorian era property in Melbourne. So you, you know, in Sydney, if you haven't got a million dollars, you're struggling to get a two-bedroom apartment. Um, <laughs> what about Geelong and Ballarat? Because yeah. you do buy in those bigger region, regional yes. areas or regional centres. Yeah. What's happening in those markets at the moment? They're not running at the same rate as Melbourne right now. They're actually having a really strong run and it's very difficult to buy in Geelong. It's really competitive. Yeah. We've had a lot of first homeowners and upgraders and see changes shift to Geelong. We've had our train upgrade, so now our B-line trains don't get stuck behind our commuter trains. They've rejigged the lines and they've put a little bit of funding into our train travel, and also they've they've put some infrastructure money into the road so that, that Geelong Drive, as boring as it is, um, <laughs> a lot of people do it. And you get to go past Werribee Zoo, though. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> oh, that's some in-jokes here from the, you know. <laughs> I see a giraffe. <laughs> yeah. What, um, how long does it take to get the train from, say, is it Flinders Street Station to Geelong? Southern Cross to Geelong on, a, on an express train should be just around an hour. Hmm. Pretty good. It's, yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. Geelong is going... It's great. I love Geelong. There's um, a lot to love about it. What are you buying in Geelong? Amazing spots. I mean, in (laughs) Newtown and West Geelong, and yes, you know, like there's actually beautiful frontages and nice streets and cafes, and um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a cracking little part. If someone's got six hundred to eight fifty, and they want a period property, and they they want as as decent a rental return as they possibly can, Geelong will deliver a slightly better rental return. Um, as you mentioned, Newtown and, and Geelong West are, are great performers, as in South, as is South Geelong, East Geelong, mm. beautiful parts of Belmont near the river. We're getting some great performance there and we've got some really gorgeous period properties. And Geelong West and Newtown have a street called Packington Street that is lighted with cafes and great shops. And so it's really seen as a lifestyle centre. And from anything that's walking distance to what they call Paco, Packington Street, you can walk into the city if you're up for a bit of a hike. You can catch the train at South Geelong Station. You can go to the water park. Um, Eastern Beach has got a fantastic water precinct. They've got an amazing gallery. It's a, it is a city with a great soul and it's changed dramatically, particularly since um, the Ford plant closure and job losses, which everybody was pretty down on Geelong mm. about. But we've really seen Geelong have a facelift. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about because, yeah. you know, you look at Elizabeth, for instance, in South Australia, it's not yes. the same story at all. No, um, but Elizabeth isn't next to the city and on the waterfront. Yes. So Geelong's just been sitting there waiting for change mm. and it was always considered a blue-collar industrial city. So now the white coal's moving in. Is that yeah, the deal? It's pretty, it's well, a there's lots nice in place. the uni. Mm. So Deakin yes. have got a huge campus down there. You've got a lot of governments like the, the insurance TACs down yeah. there. They're like decentralising Melbourne that's and Geelong's. Right pretty good option. So, you know, and if you it's think closer it, than, than Sydney, you know, is Newcastle or Wollongong, isn't that's it? That's right. So, I use yeah. that as an example a lot. And what we know about employers is workplace flexibility and IT connectivity has changed dramatically. So we're seeing a lot of professionals who still have a Melbourne-based employer saying, I'll work from home today or I'll work on the train or I'll vary my hours. It's becoming easier to do if you're prepared to do it. And the beaches are nicer than St Kilda. It's great. Yeah, yeah no, I think it's a um, – the thing I think when you are, it is still – hasn't got the scarcity as it has in the inner rings of Melbourne, but mm. there are inner rings of Geelong. That's right. Which yeah. is, and that's – there are beautiful streets and yeah. there are actual lifestyle benefits when you live in these suburbs. Yep. And then they can't really recreate this, you no. know, because there's a river and then mm. there's new housing estates coming, but that stock is never going to compete with those scarce properties in the centre of Geelong. So yeah. yep. even when you – investing rural, it's not a case of just you've then got to be extremely targeted within that The principles still apply. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What about Ballarat? Ballarat isn't somewhere I'd take someone for capital growth if that's what they're after. Ballarat is for someone who's a bit more sensitive to cash flow and they still want some moderated growth but they're wanting something that might be closer to cash flow neutral. To look for something cash flow positive in Ballarat I think would be a mistake because the quality of the dwelling and the location um, and or will will be dubious. 
So you'd need to go to Ballarat if you were wanting to balance out your portfolio and go for something that has a less aggressive cash flow, but still will give you moderated growth. And the long-term growth rates in Ballarat are around that 5 to 7%. So it's not minuscule. So who's renting the properties? Locals. So we've got a university in Ballarat and the uni demand always causes a spike in rental demand. We've got the Ballarat-based hospital, which is quite sizable and a lot of doctors do their training from all around our universities. We've got manufacturers and people laugh at me and say manufacturers. You don't tell me about that. But the, the point is we've got some long-term manufacturers, Mars, McCain's. We've got our train carriages being made there. Uh, we also have some decentralised services. So triple zero, um, the ATO, um, emergency response. So we, we do have quite a lot of jobs created in Ballarat and a lot of them are 12 and 24-month terms. So people who are posted to Ballarat for two years don't necessarily want to buy there. So we've got a really right. strong rental demand, really tight vacancy rates and pretty decent rental yields. And diversity of employees as well. That's right. Mm. I think another thing is that Ballarat's, you know, there's only one train, there's a train and it's under an hour to the city. Um, it's just over, but just it's not it, an yeah. unpleasant ride. Yeah, and it's, yeah, and you can kind of book it and, and it's not commute. expensive. Yeah, they do. Yeah. yeah. So the, the issue that we've got with the V-Line trains from both Ballarat and Geelong is they start to pick up in the, the Melbourne fringe suburbs. So a lot of patrons are complaining about getting on a crowded train and having no seat. And if you're getting on at Bacchus Marsh, that's a really long train commute. But the reality is that the patronage is there. And if you get to the Ballarat station at 7.15 in the morning, you can see for yourself how many people work in Melbourne. Yeah. I think there's, um, but there's back to Ballarat though, you've got to go for the scarcity. Mm. And if you're going to go, there are going to be a certain part of higher income workers in Melbourne that go, I don't really want to pay $2 million in Camberwell or $3 million in Brighton mm. or 1.5 in, in the north. Yep. I wouldn't mind living in Ballarat and commuting. Oh. And I, and they, so, but they, they don't want to move to Ballarat and tell all their friends they're living in Ballarat unless they're living <laughs> in a beautiful house. Wow. It's interesting you say that because I got stars in my eyes on Saturday night when I looked at the auction results and there was this amazing residence that sold in Lydiard Street, which is right near the train station. It's in Soldiers Hill and that's one of the most highly prized locations. And it was, it's, a mansion. It was absolutely beautiful and had the wraparound veranda. It's this gorgeous old brick property dating back to probably 1870 or something like that. And it went for eight for seven hundred and eighty thousand dollars. Wow! So you could <laughs> That's get the ones to buy. That was amazing. Imagine yeah. living in that yeah. and being able to walk to the station in the city, and your kids are at private schools. And I can certainly say with confidence that both Ballarat and Geelong have some of the best private schools in our state. Mm. And wow. um, and they're well documented. So yep. it is a really viable tree change for people that, that have made that decision. I mean, that's something that we don't have in, in I don't think we have anything like that in, in Sydney. We certainly don't have anything within an hour commute mm. as a viable option for Sydney workers to live in. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Now, please, Kate, help our listeners out here. Give us an example of a property dumbo. We can all learn what not to do from these stories. People that say, I'm not going to invest in that particular market because it's already boomed. That always makes me sad. Because they're just looking at the short term. It might be the gentrification run that that particular area has had. And I often think to myself, if only they could wind back the clock and stand back and look at that chart dating from whenever, wartime, right through to where we are now. And I remember someone saying to me when I bought my own house in Yarraville and I spent 802000 absolutely had to have it, made all the fatal mistakes. I took my daughter along to see it and she said to the real estate agent, my mama has been watching this house forever and she loves it. No way. Oh. Didn't give away. She cost You're me about getting... 50 grand. I think that's a property dumbo. You took your daughter along. I was the dumbo. You should never, ever rely on telling a seven-year-old to keep quiet because they just can't. But anyway, I remember saying to someone who critiqued me about the fact that Yarraville had had this enormous growth five in the five years prior to my purchase there and it had some fantastic growth. I said, what's your point? It's growing. It's you think it's well. stopped. It's going to stop. That's it can't forever. keep going. <laughs> and the person who I purchased the property off paid under $40,000 for it mm. around the time that I was born. That, that's an incredible growth cycle and it doesn't just stop because the area's had a good run. 
an area continues to perform for all of the right reasons. So if the growth drivers are genuine and sustained, just because it's had um, a big spurt of gentrification, that particular crazy couple of years might slow down, but the capital growth will continue. I mean, when you come back in 40 years' time, Yarraville's still going to be four or five k's from the city, still going to be a few stops. It's still going to have a beautiful village feel, you know. So, yeah, you're going to have to look back and it's not going to be, it's still going to be the same, no. right? So, oh, well, who are we talking to? I think, was it Marnie Senior, perhaps, or somebody that was talking to a buyer that had been looking for eight years? Oh, no. I mean, really? No. Oh, no, it was some Georgie Bates. Yep. Remember the, the buyer had been looking soon. Yeah, <laughs> you know, buy looking for eight years, always, oh, no, I'm not going to buy there because it's already, it's it's boomed, yes. there's no more growth in it and it's like just watch it take off again. It's really sad. I had a, when I was a listing agent, I had a lady that had decided a two-bedroom renovated villa in Black Rock um, that was valued around the $305,000, $310,000 mark. She said, I remember when they were in the 200s, this is crazy, it's just got out of hand, I'm going to wait until the market drops. So she'll never ever get that asset it's a real shame and oh black rock a little unit there's probably done all right cause it's right near yeah. the water and yeah be looking I mean, about 800 now there's two real problems with that for a strategy one is you go well if this is has stopped boomed uh or it's, it's not going to boom anymore where do you go so then you look for a a place to boom and then the problem is you, you that's, that's a what if so what happens if that place doesn't boom yeah and then the place that you wanted to really buy does boom it could be a double hit because you you know you go chase the money somewhere else and that doesn't come and the place that you could have bought or you should have bought you didn't think was going to boom did yes. and you've just constantly you're just going to be chasing your tail so it all comes down to not understanding what makes the property market work yes. that's really what it comes down to absolutely true which is really sad and betting for booms isn't really investing it's speculating and mm. there's a huge difference so yep. you know if you want to go chase the money or where you think might boom and it doesn't then you've got to be willing to deal with the consequences of you know, so why you should really invest where you don't have to actually get a boom. You just need to get consistent, sustainable growth. Well, Kate, that was great. I didn't mean to be a poet there, but I was. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. You know, as I said, we've been we've had some review. In fact, I want to encourage anyone listening, if you like what you're listening to, please give us an iTunes review. It does help other people find us and hear about these great property tips. Um, so, look, please, please, please give us a review. But in those reviews, we do read them and we were getting, well, there's quite a few in there asking for some Melbourne content. So thank you so much for coming and sharing oh, it's been your such insights a pleasure. with us. Thank you for Thanks, asking Kate. me. Cheers. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Well, Kate talked a lot about the type of property that doesn't necessarily fall in a flat market. And we talked about boom and bust and, and a whole lot of issues around timing the market and when you're buying a property. Now, I think the principles in Melbourne are very similar to those in Sydney. And we also talked about Ballarat and Geelong and the principles in those areas very much reflected the the fundamentals of what makes the market go around in the bigger cities. And I think this is the thing that's really important. Those properties that are of a period style, so the scarcity around the history and the and the aesthetics of property that is pre-World War II effectively. So that's one thing to look for. And certainly Geelong and Ballarat, Melbourne, Sydney, the inner areas all offer those types of properties. Now, obviously, in a regional area, there's going to be lesser of them and a smaller radius, but the principle remains the same. The other thing, too, was being close to cafes and transport, so a walkable distance to a lifestyle centre. And particularly when she talked about Geelong as well, you're talking about being close to the water and the bay and the beaches. So, these are some of the characteristics that underpin an area and give them the foundation for sustainable capital growth. But the thing that really drives this, what gets to the heart of this, is the fact that it's owner-occupiers buying this sort of property, not investors. Now, when we're talking about booms and busts, there is one thing that you've got to be very, very careful of. When you're looking at an area, if it's been investors that are driving up prices and there's not a good, solid foundation of owner-occupier appeal in that area and locals that are able to afford to buy the property, then that's a type of area that's risky. 
It's a type of area you've got to be very careful of and where you do need to be very, very mindful of timing, whether you're buying in a boom or, or a peak of the market or whether you're buying in a trough. And whereas when we're talking about these inner areas, so the inner area of a regional centre or the inner area of a major city, the principles are there. And that is that you've always got people that want to live there. You've always got people that are prepared to buy quality property in those areas, regardless of what the rest of the market is doing. And so that's our Elephant Rider Bootcamp for today is really just understanding those fundamentals of the owner-occupier appeal that underpins a solid lower risk area in which to buy property. Please join us next week for Pete Wargent. Now, Pete Wargent is the data machine and without doubt is one of Australia's top property bloggers. But what was amazing in this conversation is we opened the hive up on lots of different conversations, but more importantly, Brisbane. Brisbane is one market that we haven't really gone to detail yet. So this is one episode that you have to listen to. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.